0: History of Japan podcast, episode 162, The Best of Frenemies, part 8. Today we close out our look at Japan-Korea relations with a quick look at the relationship between South Korea and Japan. First, though, we have to discuss the modern history of South Korea, or to give it its legal name, the Republic of Korea. The South was established as an independent state on August 17th. 1948, its first president, chosen by the Americans for his westernized attitude and his close relationship with the U.S., none other than our old buddy, Syngman Rhee. Rhee's new Korean government was American-backed, but like many American-aligned states during the Cold War, it was not a democracy in fact, though it was one in name. Rhee's government, for example, suppressed calls for tenancy and land reform, among the nation's agricultural class. Remember that under Japanese rule, most farmers in Korea had been tenants. After the Japanese were ejected from Korea, however, rich Koreans, particularly those affiliated with Ri, stepped into the role of landlord vacated by the Japanese. Cries for land reform were treated as communist agitation, and the instigators were accused of being aligned with Kim Il-sung and the North which, to be fair, some of them were. Ri and his allies were able to steer the new state successfully through the Korean War, though it was devastated in the process. The ancient capital of Seoul, for example, was a big symbolic center for the South, but it was nearly flattened by the war as it changed hands four times in the span of one year. The experience of the Korean War made Ri even more desperate to cling to power to walk the straight and narrow path to a better Korea that only he could see. He decided to accomplish this through a time-honored method dating back to the English Civil War. In 1952, when the Korean War was still raging, and the government of the South was based in the port city of Busan, Rhee declared martial law in Busan, arrested every government member he could find who opposed him, and packed the South's parliament with his allies who promptly pushed through a constitutional amendment, greatly expanding his powers. Rhee's government would soldier on for eight more years, desperately trying to pick up the pieces left over from the Korean War, and to keep the Korean people in check, mostly by relying on American aid money and an ever more dictatorial regime. In particular, Rhee would implement one of the most infamous laws in Korean history, and one that is technically still on the books, though it has been amended since, the National Security Act. This act essentially turned the South into a police state. Anybody suspected of subversive activity, particularly any affiliation with communist groups, could be arrested on the spot and held more or less indefinitely. In 1960, however, Rhee would finally lose control. In the presidential election scheduled for that year... Ree's supporters massaged the returns for the value of massage that means basically completely rewrote. This level of election fraud was so open and obvious that it sparked off street protests, which were further inflamed when the body of a protester was found floating in the harbor of the city of Massan. The protests got bad enough that Ree was forced to flee the country. He was taken to safety by the American CIA, and spent the last four years of his life in exile in Hawaii. In his absence, South Korea was able to briefly establish a democratic government, but as new democracies tend to be, this new southern state was very unstable. This caused much consternation in the South Korean army, where all eyes were directed nervously north in fear that Kim Il-sung might take advantage of the chaos to kick off Korean War II, Electric Boogaloo. Finally, a young Japanese trained general in the South Korean army named Park Jung-hee could take no more. Late in 1960, he and his allies in the South Korean military launched a coup, overthrowing the fledgling democracy and installing themselves as military dictators. Because in addition to everything else Park learned from the Japanese, he also apparently picked up the Imperial Japanese army attitude of, when in doubt, launch a coup. For the next 28 years, South Korea was basically run as a repressive military dictatorship. Never on the level of North Korea, mind you, there was not an elaborate system of re-education camps, but Park and his successors were still quite brutal. Open criticism of the regime was more than enough to secure an unpleasant fate. Park himself would actually eventually be consumed by his own repressive apparatus. In 1979, the director of the uninventively named Korean Central Intelligence Agency, or KCIA, shot Park, either in a fit of rage after Park insulted him, or as part of a planned coup. We actually don't know for sure either way. However, Park's military allies continued to run Korea even after his death, until 1988, and surprisingly enough, Park is not remembered altogether unfondly in modern South Korea, as evidenced by the fact that his daughter is now the elected president of the republic. Park Jung-hee, you see, receives a lot of credit for what is known as the Miracle on the Han River. Remember what I said about how under the Japanese the South was kept deliberately as an underdeveloped agricultural zone, where the North received all the industry? Park was the one to start reversing that process. By taking what little surplus the South had from exporting foodstuffs and very carefully investing it, in state-controlled industries and strategic businesses, Park was able to begin the process of kickstarting the South's industrial economy. Park was never able to match the insane growth rates of 1960s Japan or 1980s China, but his policies did lead to steady growth. As shown by the increase in GDP per capita, from $103 in 1962 to $5,438 in 1989, to over 20,000 in 2006. His repressive legacy, however, was finally broken in 1988, when democracy activists in Seoul led peaceful protests against the government, correctly estimating, as it turned out, that the military would not resort to shooting them when so many members of the global media were already in Seoul for an unrelated event, the 1988 Olympics. Those protests led to democratic reforms allowing for open and fair elections and establishing the basis of modern South Korea's democracy. In other words, unlike the Japanese who were handed democratic government by the Americans, the South Koreans took it for themselves. While South Korea's democracy is certainly messy, it has also been enormously successful, both in terms of political stability and continued economic growth, despite some trouble in the 1990s. So that's South Korea in a nutshell. What about its relationship with Japan? Early on, the answer would likely be what relationship? Japan did not formally recognize South Korea as an independent country for the first two decades of its existence, and Prime Minister Yoshida Shigeru was able to use what little clout he had to exclude South Korea from the signing of the Treaty of San Francisco in 1952, formally ending the Pacific War and the American occupation of Japan. Yoshida's peevishness towards the Koreans was partially an easy-to-anticipate response to the loss of Korea. He just tried to pretend it never happened. However, it was also an outgrowth of Japanese dislike of Syngman Rhee in particular, because Rhee took a very combative attitude towards Japan from the start of his presidency. His years as an anti-Japanese activist had convinced Syngman Rhee that even if it were beaten now, Japanese ambition in Korea could never truly be stopped. As a result, he kept up a hard line towards Japan rather than trying for any kind of reconciliation. One of his more enduring policies was the so-called re Line, promoted in 1949. Re took it upon himself to draw out what he determined to be the maritime boundary between Korea and Japan, something that prior documents had left somewhat ambiguous. In particular, he included a large island off the coast of eastern Korea, known as Takeshima in Japanese and Dokdo in Korean, within the South Korean zone. Irritation at the unilateral move and fury at Ri's unwillingness to even try and talk things out caused equally peevish Japanese responses, like the aforementioned decision to block Korea from attending the signing of the San Francisco Treaty. The issue of the status of dokdo slash takeshima slash the Liangkor rocks remains an open one between Japan and South Korea, though in Japan, few people today really care that much. Outside of the prefecture, Takeshima is nominally a part of, Shimane, one of the poorest and most sparsely populated parts of Japan. In Korea, by contrast, Dokdo is hugely important as a symbol of Korea sticking it to the Japanese. It's actually a tourist destination despite literally being a bunch of barren rocks in the middle of godforsaken nowhere, and the Republic of Korea maintains a base there, despite it having about zero strategic significance for Korea. Japan would not formally recognize South Korea as an independent state until 1965. On the Japanese side, the passage of older politicians like Yoshida Shigeru from the scene, and the accession of younger men like Sato Esaku, meant a natural attitude shift towards Korea. These men definitely remembered the old days of colonial Korea, but weren't quite as attached to the old Meiji Empire as someone who grew up in the heyday of building that empire was. For the Koreans, meanwhile, the rise of Park Jung-hee made some kind of reconciliation with Japan more natural. Park, after all, had fought for the Japanese and was Japanese-trained, and besides, at least the Japanese weren't a bunch of goddamn red commies. The final treaty on basic relations between Japan and the Republic of Korea was signed on June 22, 1965. It established a normal, traditional diplomatic relationship with the two countries, with the added provision that all treaties signed before 1910, in other words, all of the unequal treaties up to annexation, were voided. Of course, none of these treaties could be militarily enforced anymore anyway, but it was an important issue for the Koreans to get the end of those treaties in writing. The treaty also covered the sticky issue of compensation. Reparations for Japan's behavior during the colonial period were a subject of constant negotiation between the two sides. In the end, Park Jung-hee got $800 million in grants, low-rate loans, and the like out of the Japanese in exchange for a proviso that this was it, No more cries for additional compensation down the line. Despite that proviso, for decades after the fact, South Korean citizens called for additional Japanese compensation, stating that Japan had an additional responsibility to pay individual victims of its colonial abuses, besides simply compensating the Korean government. However, in the early 2000s, research in Korean archives revealed that, in fact, As part of the treaty, the Koreans were supposed to pay direct reparations themselves to individuals out of the money that Park got from Japan. Park, however, used that money earmarked for reparations to fund his industrial projects instead, a decision that, while it did benefit the Korean economy, left those whose lives had been ruined by the Japanese out in the cold. The question of who owes what to whom is still one that's out in the open. Normalized relations between South Korea and Japan opened up a flood of economic exchange between the two, that Park's regime in Korea in particular benefited from. However, the 1965 treaty, while it dealt with some of the most pressing issues facing the two countries, remained silent on other important issues. Unhelpful in this regard was the United States, and here I think a brief digression into Europe is really very illustrative. After the Second World War, the United States was instrumental in establishing a European alliance designed to bring together the states of Europe into a collective security regime. That alliance, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, was essential on the one hand for American plans to contain communism in Europe. However, it was also designed to patch up rifts between non-communist countries. Take, for example, France and Germany. Which had been at each other's throats more or less since 1870. NATO compelled the two countries to work together as allies and provided some easy assurances that should one betray the other, the Americans would step in. Essentially, NATO forced all of these European powers to play nice with the other children. Before long, everybody got used to being allies instead of enemies, and lo and behold, today Germany and France, while well, they don't exactly get along, sure but the antagonism is confined to where it belongs. Clever and not-so-clever insults hurled back and forth during the World Cup the way God intended. By contrast, in Asia, the United States never really put together a system resembling NATO. It signed individual alliances with its Asian allies, but never brought those allies together in a shared alliance. In a fancy-schmancy political science class, we would call this the hub-and-spoke alliance model with America at the center, and a series of bilateral alliances, that is, two-way alliances, with individual countries. This means that America never bound South Korea and Japan together in a closer political relationship the way that it did with Germany and France. There are more than a few political scientists who think that was a mistake, that we missed an opportunity provided by the end of World War II and the Cold War to overcome decades of South Korean-Japanese animus by bringing the two together to resist the commies the way we did with France and Germany. Even today, security cooperation between the South and Japan is limited to an intelligence-sharing pact signed in 2012 directed primarily against North Korea, though there is increasing talk of joint naval exercises as well. Overall, the Japan-South Korea relationship politically remains pretty frosty, particularly when one considers how often democratic states in close proximity to each other develop friendly relations. Then, of course, there's still the enduring legacy of Japan's wartime behavior to consider. The Japanese practice of what can only be termed sexual slavery, the innocuously named comfort women, has a particularly powerful legacy for modern South Korean-Japanese relations, We've detailed the practice before on this podcast. If it's been a while since you've listened to that episode, here's a brief refresher. Japanese policy during the Second World War was to operate carefully controlled brothels for troops where women could be screened regularly for venereal disease. Except, of course, that there weren't very many women who were willing to take that kind of work. So instead, the Japanese turned to impressing local women or offering false jobs for positions like washerwomen or maids or other such domestic labor, and then taking people who applied for the job and forcing them into sexual service. Once under the power of the military, these women would be expected to service a huge number of soldiers in a single day and were often horribly mistreated. The details are genuinely horrifying, and if you're curious, again, there's an episode of the podcast on this topic, or you can find one of many books on the subject. In the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, This issue was actually not very visible. Those Japanese involved in the comfort women system were, I suppose naturally enough, careful after the war to suppress evidence of their involvement, and in the South, the whole experience was bound up in extremely conservative sexual politics, which harshly punished women who were unmarried but not virgins, even if they'd come by that status unwillingly. As a result of that attitude, as well as the normal reticence to discuss the experience among those who have been sexually assaulted, very few comfort women came forward after the war. However, in the 1990s, the issue came out into the open once more, fueled in part by growing South Korean assertiveness in international diplomacy, fitting since South Korea was becoming a major economic power at the time. It was also fueled by the growth of the Japanese right, which tried to downplay or ignore altogether Japan's wartime atrocities. The South Korean government became increasingly assertive in its demands for an apology and compensation, and the Japanese government's decision to pay reparations in 1994 by establishing the Asian Women's Fund was dismissed as insufficient. The issue became so toxic that the South Korean government actually erected a statue of a comfort woman across the street from the Japanese embassy in Seoul, at a spot where Korean citizens have held a protest against the Japanese government's inactivity on this issue every Wednesday since 1992. Within Japan, thoughts on this problem are somewhat divided. Rightists will generally insist that the Japanese army was not responsible for recruiting women, Instead, many were pressed into service by their own family. In other words, by fellow Koreans looking to make a quick buck. Which, yes, is true in some cases, the Japanese did not run the recruitment of comfort women themselves in Korea, though they did in other countries. But still, he did a bad thing first is a defense a kindergartner uses. The Japanese left, meanwhile, calls for further apologies and for more reparations. But still, while these issues are around, and they are unsolved, it would be wrong of me to leave you with the impression that South Korea and Japan remained eternally at odds with each other, or that there's no hope for a better relationship between the two. Because while South Korea and Japan have a strong legacy of political animosity, culturally, the two really have started to grow together. This is a result of one of the biggest changes in the pop culture seen in Asia in decades. The Halyu, as the Koreans call it, or the Korean wave. Put simply, traditionally, Japan has been the pop culture powerhouse of Asia. Japanese bands tend to be the chart-toppers alongside American ones, only Japanese films could consistently compete with Hollywood, and Japanese TV shows just littered the airwaves. Starting in the early 2000s, however, Korean media became increasingly popular. By now, pretty much everyone has heard at least one K-pop song, Korean pop that is, The Korean rapper Psy still holds the record for the most viewed YouTube video in history, with his hit Gangnam Style, unless it's been displaced by a video of a kitten playing with a puppy or whatever the hell else is on YouTube nowadays. Korean movies are finally getting the budget to compete with the West as well, and Korean dramas are making themselves felt in TV markets worldwide as well, for reasons that baffle and mystify me, because from what I can tell they all have literally identical plots, oh no, my fiancé who's dying has amnesia, that kind of thing. Still, regardless of your feelings on the artistic merits of K-pop, or the quality of K-drama plots, it's clear that people are watching and or listening to them, and that includes people in Japan. The earliest example is probably the 2002 series Winter Sonata, which aired in Japan in 2003, and is about, I guess I should insert a spoiler warning here, A brilliant but misunderstood student looking for his lost father who falls in love with a pure-hearted girl, but who, surprise, surprise, gets into a car accident and loses his memory. And that might be the most cliche-ridden sentence I have ever uttered in my life. Still, the series apparently spoke to people, especially Japanese women. It's been massively popular in Japan and has been rebroadcast several times. It's also been adopted into both an anime series and a stage musical, and when an actor from the series, Bei Yongjun, visited Japan, he was greeted by 3,000 Japanese fans at the airport. Supposedly, upon hearing of the visit, then Prime Minister Koizumi Junichiro ruefully remarked that Bei jong yoon was more popular with Japanese people than he was. Winter Sonata may have been the first, but it was far from alone in penetrating the Japanese market. K-dramas are now a regular feature of Japanese entertainment, as is Korean music. In particular, the stars of K-pop are extremely popular from Naha to Sapporo. If you've never heard of K-pop, in my opinion it's actually more interesting as a cultural artifact than a music genre the performers have very carefully managed stage personas that they're required to hue to in public and private, and as often as not, they're being sold for their personalities as much as for their music. Several K-pop groups have become extraordinarily popular on the Japanese market. Girls' Generation is probably the best-known one, which is an eight-member group composed exclusively of young women. They've toured Japan three times already, and I'm sure they'll be back before too long pretty much the only area where Korea still lags behind Japan is cinema simply because up until pretty recently Korean studios weren't willing to commit to the kind of budgets that would let them compete with major Japanese ones That's changing though the 2015 film Amsal meaning assassination came out to a respectable budget of about 17 million Though that one's probably not going to be too popular in Japan because like quite a few other high budget Korean action movies It's a historical epic that focuses on, guess what, fighting the Japanese. In this specific case, on an assassination attempt directed at a Japanese official by Korean resistance fighters in the early 1930s. In the other direction, things are moving pretty slowly. After independence, one of the first things President Syngman Rhee did was to ban any cultural imports from Japan. Movies, music, TV, you name it. The law did not specify Japan, but instead targeted media from countries considered to be anti-national, that is, opposed to South Korean independence. Hence the name of the law, the Law for Punishing Anti-National Deeds. In context, the target was clear. Ri's logic was that Korean culture needed space to recover from Japanese colonialism and to reassert itself. That, and as we've established, he really just didn't like the Japanese. The ban survived for decades, even during the Japan-friendly administration of Park Jong-hee. In 1998, Korea's democratic government partially lifted the ban, allowing Japanese CDs, manga, and movies, after it was, not unjustly, pointed out that restrictions on what citizens could and could not view was not befitting a democratic government. Though movies, it should be pointed out, still had to be joint Korean-Japanese productions or win a major film award to be allowed in Korea. Since then, the band has been relaxed even further. Japanese music was allowed in some limited venues, then some types of Japanese TV were allowed to be broadcast in South Korea, and so on. However, even as of this year, it is still illegal to use terrestrial signals in Korea to broadcast Japanese music or live-action dramas. As recently as 2014, a Korean song by the oddly named band Cran Pop was yanked from the airwaves because censors saw that it contained a Japanese word in its lyrics. For all that, however, Japanese media has found a home in South Korea. Anime and manga from Japan have a receptive audience in the South, as do video games. So perhaps that cultural exchange provides some hope for better relations between two of the wealthiest democracies in Asia. Certainly exposure in each country to the culture of the other has the potential to breed greater understanding, and one hopes that in a few decades, when a South Korean thinks of Japan, their first thoughts will be of Pikachu and Hello Kitty, and not of their colonial overlords. However, it would be a mistake to pretend that all of these problems are going to go away when the last generation with memories of the colonial period dies off. In Japan, the Empire is something people don't want to talk about that much, but in Korea each generation has the horror presented to them fresh in the national education system, and the colonial experience remains a fresh wound in South Korea's psyche as a result. And certainly, one can't fault South Koreans for wanting to remember the horrors of the past to ensure they don't happen again, and those in Japan who want to treat the whole colonial period as something to be forgotten bear a share of the blame as well. Yet in the end it's important to remember one essential truth. As my undergrad advisor put it, in the end, it's not like either side can move. Like it or not, Korea and Japan are neighbors, and they're always going to be. They have to learn to live with each other, if not as friends, then at least somewhat amicably. In the end, South Korea and Japan are going to have to learn to live with each other, and that's where the good news is, because for most of their history, they did. Sure, they fought early in their history, yes Hideyoshi's invasions were awful, and of course the colonial period was hugely destructive. But Korea and Japan were peaceful neighbors for two and a half centuries during the Tokugawa period, and for a millennium between the Nara period and the end of the Sengoku period. They've got a far longer legacy of peaceful coexistence than they do of war, and that's something that's worth keeping in mind today. For now, though, That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. To find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for a new series, this time on the Russo-Japanese War.